From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, I'm Emilio San Pedro, and this is the Eurovision News Podcast. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Ukrainian children have been transferred from occupied territories in East Ukraine to Russia. The Kremlin says they're saving them. Kiev claims it's genocide. In an extensive investigation by the EBU's Investigative Journalism Network, evidence of human rights and international law violations allegedly committed by Russia have been uncovered. The network has brought together journalists from several EBU members and spent three months analyzing official documents, videos, and exclusive interviews. The results are chilling. To discuss the report, we're joined by Belen López Garrido, the project manager of the Investigative Journalism Network, and Derek Bowler, editor of the Eurovision Social Newswire. Uh, Belen and Derek, welcome. We'll start with you, Belen. This has become one of the most high-profile investigations the EBU's Investigative Journalism Network has done. What initially drew you to it? It is a good story. It's a terrible story, but it is a very good story from a journalistic point of view. Now, the story came to us uh, via um, a journalist from uh, UAPBC, the public service uh, media from Ukraine. Uh, She showed us a video during uh, the group's uh, last workshop, which happened in Bari in Italy in early October. She showed us this video uh, with children in a train being transported into Moscow, and with them was the um, Presidential Children's Rights Commissioner, Maria Liova Belova. And she said, look, there's all these children. These are Ukrainian children. Uh, the Russians are calling them orphans, but in fact, they, many of them have families. And we think that this is happening um, in a systematic way. This is happening all the time. This is not the only case. So we decided to look into it um, just to see what was there. Now, we had seen, of course, uh, cases reported before of children being separated from their parents and parents who had managed to go into Russia and somehow recover them. This had been reported, you know, by many news organizations. But what was what really caught my eye, I think, in a way, was the fact that they were being so public about it. And she said that there were other videos like this. So we started looking, uh, you know, with the help of Russian speakers, with the help of the verification team in the Eurovision Social Newswire. And then it, it really, I was actually really shocked to the amount of videos uh, that were out there, how proud the Russian authorities were to show uh, what they described as an operation to save these kids from the horrors of war. They described them often as orphans or pretty much always as orphans. And of course, what they were saying is that they were taking them away from a war situation and just offering them temporary uh, housing and whatnot. But really, the just the volume, I mean, there were plane loads with more than 100 kids, trains with 126 kids. And so little by little, uh, you know, you started looking at all of this and you were like, wait, there's 100 here, another 100 there, another 75 there. So Little by little, it started really showing that it wasn't just this personal story or this really emotional story about kids being separated and parents getting them, but there was something behind it. And when you started digging, you started then, you know, like a little bit making the links because you realize that there's a legal framework to it. Uh, Putin enacted a law that made uh, citizenship, Russian citizenship, 
uh, very easy and accessible for children from Ukraine. And then you could see this children's rights commissioner meeting with regional uh, authorities, especially in Donetsk and Luhansk and the occupied territories. And so little by little, we started pulling the thread and it started becoming uh, very clear that it wasn't just a one-off or a few-off. It wasn't a rescue operation. There was a systematic effort. Uh, and so from that moment on, what we set out to do was, okay, well, if we believe that this is a playbook, then it needs to be airtight because it is a pretty, you know, in a way, big accusation uh, to levy against the government. And then the the whole idea was to start finding the different pieces that would make, that would show that there is indeed a structure and how it was working when it started and then the different types of kids. So we started like mapping it out all a little bit together. And that's how we ended up with the whole idea of a systematic effort of a playbook and the different types of kids and the different places where they end. This children's rights commissioner, mm-hmm. Maria Liova Bilova, her name comes up repeatedly in this story She's a critical part of the story. Who is she? She's definitely the key player in this story. She's got uh, Putin's support. Uh, she's somebody who has had a pretty meteoric career in politics, always with Putin. She's somebody very religious. She's very much in line with uh, this idea of Russia, uh, imperial Russia, that Putin has. And she has herself. She has uh, nine kids between uh, adopted and biological. She also fosters another 13 kids with disabilities in a foundation, uh, not with living with her, but in a foundation that um, she sponsors, which is actually also under investigation for financial wrongdoings, but that's another story. And she really is the person who has the full backing and the full support from Vladimir Putin. And he said it uh, clearly, it is on video. It's one of the elements of the investigation where he tells her, tell me what you need. Tell me what problems you have to bring these kids and I will make sure to remove them. And as recently as two or three weeks ago, after the investigation came out, there was another meeting um, where Putin met with her and he doubled down on this policy. He said, you know, we are going to keep bringing these kids because we're saving them. And also we have to remember that for them, they are essentially Russian because the moment they're coming from occupied territories, this is this is also the key of the question. The the playbook also works in a way they come to a territory in East Ukraine, they occupy it, they take over the administration, and this means also the state care houses, schools, and everything else. And then from that moment on, they start taking kids into Russia or into Crimea, places where they are a lot more uh, established, if you will, than the recently occupied territories like Kherson or, or Zaporizhia. So Lyova Belova is the key uh, character in all of this. She is the one with the regional connections. She's the one that has set up a federal database where all of the names of these kids are going. So they go into the system. They're effectively Russians. Uh, She's the one also behind the ceremonies where they literally give them Russian passports, uh, which makes them, of course, perfect candidates for adoption. Now, adoption is uh, a secret procedure. A lot of journalists who looked at our investigation were asking me, well, how many are adopted? Well, I don't know. But what happens when these kids are adopted is because their new legal guardians are the parents in Russia. They can pretty much do anything in terms of changing their name or really cutting off any ties they may still have um, with Ukraine. 
So yeah, she is definitely the key person in this. She's got a lot of support. She's got the finances behind. She was helped at the beginning a lot by the uh, Moscow governor, uh, because in Moscow there was a big infrastructure already in terms of state care houses and fostering families and whatnot. So that was one of the places where the kids were taken at the beginning. Now they are in places as far as Siberia. Uh, some of them uh, have ended up um, in Chechnya, Belarus, and other places. But everything seems and all the leads seem to point at her as the key central character of this story. But you weren't able to, nor any of the reporters from the investigative journalism network were not able to speak to her. This story was looked into in terms of particular cases before by outlets like the New York Times or the Washington Post, and they all requested interviews with her. Uh, they never got an answer. We, at the very end of the um, investigation, because, of course, we didn't want to say too much what we were looking into, but when we were almost getting ready to publish, uh, after a security assessment, we decided to request an interview with her, but also with the Moscow governor, uh, Borovyov. And we sent reminders and they are yet to respond. I mean, the response for us was this meeting that they held a couple of weeks later uh, between Putin and herself, where they basically said, we don't care what anybody's saying. We don't care what the U.S. State Department is saying because of the Yale um, University study on the same topic. We're going to continue doing this. We're just going to do it bigger and better. And what has Ukraine done and the Ukrainian authorities and what have they been able to do, if anything, to at least uh, keep a record of these children or keep tabs on where they are? Well, that's also a really big question. Uh, what the Ukrainian state will say is, look, we're at war. We don't you know, necessarily have uh, diplomatic relations here in terms of being able to get these kids back. But the truth of the matter is also that before the war and before any of this happened, Ukraine had a huge amount of children under state care, the, the biggest in Europe. Over 100,000 children were under state care or state guardianship and around half of them with disabilities. Uh, the policy in Ukraine seemed to be a little bit the opposite of what it is in Western Europe uh, in the sense that when a family has trouble taking care of their kids rather than doing social policies to support that family, uh, the idea was more that those kids were put under state care. So in a rush before the invasion, when they saw the invasion was coming, they emptied a lot of these state care houses. And so they put the kids with the families or in areas that were not in the east that they didn't think were under so much danger. But that already created a lot of problems in terms of uh, the data for these children. And that already started to create a little bit of a vacuum in, in terms of where are these kids. They don't really know. The, the, the figures are can change widely depending on where you look at. They talk about tens of thousands of children, but they also count the ones that were taken um, unaccompanied and the ones that left with their parents. So what have they done? Well, they say that they have asked uh, Russia to give the children back uh, and that Russia will not give them back. Um, what the NGOs in Ukraine say is that what should be done is that there should be green corridors or there should be some sort of exchange. The same way they've been able to talk to exchange prisoners, they should be able to talk to exchange children. That is not happening. Um, there hasn't been such an exchange of children. So what the Ukrainians are doing now is they're asking for international help. They're asking for mediation from the ICRC. 
Uh, they've asked for mediation from the UN or from the European Union. They're just asking international uh, organizations to help them because they're not getting really anywhere uh, with the Russians. And they have a huge problem, which is that they don't really know in many cases who they are asking to return. They don't really have the information on these kids in most of the cases. Let's bring in Derek, Derek Bowler, who runs the Eurovision Social Newswire. And this is where you came in to this project a bit, known in helping to uh, define where these children may have come from, the timeline as well. Tell us a bit about that. I think if we look at the start of the invasion itself, I think we were all taken aback at the uh, amount of content that was available on social. A lot of this invasion was playing out initially on TikTok, um, but then moved to different platforms like Telegram, etc. And one of the things that struck us as part of this investigation was that, as Belen said, the amount of sheer amount of information that was being shared uh, in terms of what we could call propaganda videos from Belova in particular. Um, also, the Moscow governor as well, sharing a lot of um, information on these kids, um, meet and greets, uh, welcoming them to different regions, etc. Um, and there was really a case of following the, uh, I guess, following the trail and pulling away um, at the different videos and seeing what we could what we could find. Um, as part of that, uh, you know, great credit to uh, Thais Porto and Massa Amalahi and uh, Jenny Hauser of the Social Newswire. Um, what we set about doing was identifying the key players because at the start of this, the idea was not just about telling one story. It was about the system um, and the systematic uh, taking of children from Ukraine to Russia. Um, and what we set about doing was identifying as much content as we possibly could. And as you see in the actual investigation, we highlighted one particular instance of, of a boy called Staz, who was brought from um, state care in Donetsk into Moscow, where he was reunited with his his siblings, one including one of his twin sister. Um, and this was all documented very, very widely uh, through the Moscow governor himself, but also with Belova. And it was just a case of us being able to carry out the simple verification process because we are handling propaganda material. And in this instance, um, you know, this wasn't, you know, something like North Korea where they're showing missile strikes or they're showing arms strength. What we're actually showing here is able to, by piece by piece, where it's a video from today and another video from three months, we're actually being able to document a child's journey from Ukraine to the end result, which was foster care or and our adoption uh, in Russia. What is the process that you and your team go through to, uh, it's a very difficult process of verifying this material, knowing uh, if it's authentic or not? That's a, it's, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, our first uh, idea was to set about uh, curating and collecting this content. So very simply, we started creating spreadsheets or one particular spreadsheet where we, um, gathered all of these videos and images into one place. And the idea was that we would create a timeline of events, not necessarily at the start to show the finished product, but it was an idea of putting content into a timeline when it was published and going back then to identify if we could identify children, if we could identify people, if we could identify things like locations, dates, times, etc. And what we set about doing was trying to build a catalogue of information that was available to members of the 
of the journalism network to be able to harvest and mine and be able to tell their stories as um, as it came about. We actually had it, the timeline itself, which is, you know, is part of the investigation as well, was initially just put in as a research tool to say, look, this is the evidence we've gathered in terms of the investigation. Here's where it is. But it actually became kind of an important point, a publication point, because it actually showed visually, um, right going back right to the start when uh, Putin first met with uh, Belova, I think it was in uh, March of last year in a public meeting at the Kremlin, right up until the date of the publication of the investigation. So we had uh, information to show visually with videos and images documenting these, I guess, poignant events uh, throughout the investigation. And that provides that provides people who are looking at this investigation because we are talking about essentially proving what is defined as a war crime. Very visual evidence showing the key players like the Moscow governor, Belova herself, but also uh, at frequent points we see the same children appearing in what we would describe as, you know, staged or propaganda videos. So it was a very uh, important part of of what we believe to be the visual side of the investigation. For those who haven't seen it, those, um, and I would recommend that they do, those uh, images often appear like you know, children on a train or an airplane receiving teddy bears. Uh, it's, it looks like, you know, children on their way to, to Disneyland. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing for me with with Belova in particular, she's kind of portrayed as this Mary Poppins type Florence Nightingale character uh, who is bringing so much joy to all her, uh, to all these new children who are coming to, to Russia. Um, the pictures, uh, you can see the Moscow governor playing football with children, like you said, on, on when the train first arrived with children in uh, in Moscow, they're greeted with toys, gifts. Um, but you can see it's all staged as well. So they go from the train platform to Belova holding somewhat of a, a staged or planned um, media uh, media blackout where she is surrounded by these kids, some of whom are smiling, um, some of whom you can see they're kind of wondering what's, what's happening or what's going on. So it's all been meticulously planned all the way along. You know, as Belen pointed out as well, is that a lot of the... Uh, this with Belova in particular as well has been the fact that she's been very public about her appearances in different different regions. So meeting the heads of administration in Ukraine, her own charity, which has been seen to be giving aid to children in Donbass, everything right down has been very much uh, planned. And it's, its publication at certain times and at certain places has been meticulously uh, thought out as well. We talked about children who were in state care in uh, eastern Ukraine, but it's not only children in state care, no? No, no. There are different uh, types of, of kids, different sources, for lack of a better word, uh, of kids that are taken into Russia. State care, yes, uh, is the biggest source in terms of numbers also, because if you think about it, they're already there as a group. So they come and they take a whole group. But there's also those kids that get, uh, which uh, we called uh, separated by war, and that includes the kids who become orphans uh, because their parents or their guardians get killed during the war, or they get separated from their parents because either the parents or themselves get injured, and then they are taken into Russia for medical care, or because they get separated in the infamous filtration camps. And then there is the the other category of children, which is sometimes the most 
difficult to believe uh, for people on the outside, uh, which are the children who are voluntarily sent by parents to so-called summer camps into Russia. It now, was, for me, one of the hardest ones to process. And I can imagine, as you say, for most people. Yes. I mean, and the, and the first time you, you read about it or you look into it, you're like, but what do you mean the parents just voluntarily sent their kids to a country they're at war with and cross the border? But then you start reading the stories of uh, of these parents and you realize that uh, in a lot of these areas, there's a story, for example, of uh, two families in Kharkiv in the investigation. These were families that were seeing how children were actually being killed in the streets, in the war and in the fighting. So the the modus operandi is the same. The local administration uh, is taken over by the Russians. And then next thing you know, in so- local newspapers uh, or pamphlets, however you want to call them, they start advertising these summer camps. Now, this is something that was already happening before. I mean, we can't pretend that... Ukraine and Russia have never had any sort of relationship either or that they've always been at war. No, this was happening, especially in East Ukraine. Uh, there, there are still links there, which have now gone uh, very sour, but this was happening before the war in a completely different context. But it happened again. They asked, they said, listen, send your kids to this summer camp. They'll be safe for two or three weeks. They'll be fine. And because this is something that wasn't a completely like uh, outlandish idea, they had heard about these things in the past. Parents send their kids to these camps so they would be safe from the bombings. They would be away from the horrors of war, at least for a few weeks, thinking that they would come back. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. And this is also, you know, one of the so-called sources uh, of children that have ended up in Russia. Now, we've seen also other reports of what happens in these camps. Uh, there's a lot of patriotic, um, you know, fanfare uh, being displayed. And we've seen children from Mariupol have been uh, parading Russian flags and, and things that are definitely not part of a summer camp curriculum. Um, and then... When they don't come back, of course, the anguish comes to the parents. Um, and then they are left with two choices, either wait and, um, you know, trying to figure out if they're ever going to come because they don't really get an answer from the Russian authorities. And in the meantime, what actually happened in some of these villages is that the Ukrainians took it back. So now they don't even have contact with the Russian authorities that they gave their, their kids to, to begin with. And they were asking them for all sorts of papers, birth certificates, original birth certificates, and, and all sorts of papers that these children left with. So they're either left with the choice of waiting for these kids to come back or go and get them themselves. Now, even if they are neighboring countries right now because of the war, crossing from East Ukraine into Russia involves a trip through four or five countries. Poland, Baltic countries, some uh, war fronts and whatnot, uh, and then showing up if they actually are lucky enough to make it there and if the kids are still there and they haven't been moved internally into Russia. And what needs to be said as well is that when this happens and the parents show up where these kids are, whether it is in a Russian hospital because they're receiving medical treatment or in a summer camp because they're still taken, um, taken there, the Russians actually do give the children back to the parents. You spoke to some international law experts mm-hmm. dealing with these types of issues. Mm-hmm. This isn't by any stretch the first time the children have ended up being a political football, uh, as it were, between two sides. Um, but this one has very specific uh, connotations that you've been uh, pointing out. 
what did they say? What are the legal recourses for these parents on the international level? Is there any kind of possible prosecution or any way to draw more attention to their plight? Well, uh, there's a number, uh, of, uh, proceedings that are already open. I mean, we had an international, um, prosecutor who specializes in, in war crimes who said that never before in history have there been so many open legal proceedings as in this war because there's proceeding in the Ukrainian courts. They're filing, um, also papers with the ICC and everybody is looking at what is happening right now in Ukraine. Now, the parents themselves, the only recourse they have is filing papers with the Ukrainian legal system, which is not really going anywhere um, at this point. So the parents as such, they don't really have a lot of recourse because the Russian search is not going to, you know, uh, acknowledge uh, any of this. Again, for them, this is an evacuation. Uh, this is a temporary placement in uh, foster families, and they are very well within their rights to protect their own Russian citizens. So it is a very difficult uh, legal recourse. Now, what there is, is indeed according to the legal experts, and that'll be for the courts to decide, but there is indications. I mean, there's obviously war crimes being committed, just the fact that children are being uh, moved uh, during the time of war. If it is uh, proven at the legal threshold, we've proven it at the journalistic threshold, but if it is proven at the legal threshold that this is systematic, then it could be crime against humanity. It doesn't look like it is genocide as Kiev claims. Uh, and that is because it is very, very, very difficult, almost impossible to prove the intent, uh, which is the key legal threshold to prove uh, genocide. I wanted to ask both of you on a personal level what it was like to work on this story when you got deep into it and you saw the images and you worked. I'll start with you, Derek. Um, I know you're a father of young children as well, and I- I'm just wondering how how it impacted you. As somebody who works in the wild west of journalism, which is so- social media, um, we're used to seeing horrific scenes, and this invasion, of course, has has offered so many distressing and um, difficult to deal with uh, images and, and videos. Uh, this one, as you said, being a father of two young two young boys, initially you approach it as a story where you're trying to stay journalistic. You're you're trying to go through the five Ws and, and take it from there, but very quickly becomes a case of you see children who are on their own, who are terrified, who are looking for their parents, who are looking for their relatives, um, and they're being essentially uh, amalgamated into bigger families or families in Russia. And it can be heartbreaking because I know myself that having seen a lot of the, the conflict play out on social media with children being injured, which is some of the more difficult and distressing content. But um, when you see both sides of the coin here, I see the children in Russia kind of distressed or shocked in many ways that they're in a different country. And then you see the other side of the coin, you see parents in Ukraine left without their children. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And it's very, very difficult to separate yourself from that because um, one of the things that we've we're working on quite a lot at the moment and at the EBU is, is the idea of trauma and vicarious trauma that people might be affected by, by viewing distressing images. But 
as someone who works in this area every day, it's very difficult to separate yourself from this, from this day to day because we work on the Ukraine every day. We go home, we switch on the news. It's the main story. It's very, very hard to disassociate yourself from it. Um, for me, it's had, it's taken its toll because, um, when I go home, I see the boys. They're delighted to see me because I've been away all day. I couldn't imagine, you know, going home and not seeing them there and knowing that they're in a different country with a different family. It would break my heart. So it's very, very difficult. Um, luckily, we've got a lot of support structures in place at the EBU to help us kind of get through this. But certainly, it, you don't become desensitized to this kind of stuff. It, it, it does stick with you. It's very, very difficult to um, to pull yourself back out of it because... You know, it's a story that matters. And I think this whole investigation highlights such a, a terrible thing that's happened. Thank you, Derek. It's interesting what Derek is saying there, Belen, because in, in a sense, there are so many viscerally far worse images of the war in Ukraine, of, you know, bodies that were clearly uh, tortured or that were laid out uh, for everyone to see there uh, after being uh, uh, killed brutally. But this is a psychological trauma. This is a, you may see these children looking quite happy, holding a teddy bear. And if you're on the surface, they may look fine. And, and the parents clearly very distressed. So it's, it's at a different level, isn't it? That this uh, trauma hits. It's because it's a different uh, type of violence, but it is equally violent. I mean, the, the, the images that, hurt you the most, at least to me, are not necessarily the bloodiest images. And it's more about this child who's looking lost and who's, you know, he's fine. He's uh, actually, arguably, he's probably better off in that particular moment. He's better off in a so-called safe place temporarily than he would be under the bombs. But to look at these children and to know that they are you know, away from their families that you don't even know if they're going to see them again, or even if they don't have families just from their own country, their culture, their relatives, you know, any, everything that they know. Uh, and on top of it, they are in a way, there's the, the, the evil factor, if you will, they're in the hands of the aggressor, if you will. This, this is the country that is also in a way invading and, um, in an act of aggression against their own country. So it is a different type of violence and it is the, the, the look of these children that stays with you. It's not the blood necessarily. It's not the, some of these images hurt you in, in a completely different way. And uh, as Derek was saying, I also have like three, um, young uh, girls at home and it, it gives you a completely different perspective, I think, because you, you just feel it different. And for me, it was also, you know, a matter also of actually learning to appreciate as well what you have and, uh, you know, the safety that you're able to provide to your own kids. No other reason than where you were born and, and how you were born and, and when. But yes, it was a very difficult story and we're ready now to do something, I don't know, on the financial empire of the Kardashians or something that uh, has a completely different register <laughs> because this was a tough one. Well, thank you very much, Belen Lopez Garrido and Derek Bowler. Thank you both for joining us. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a five-star review and telling a friend about us. Thank you. Thank you.